Friends, I have the distinct privilege this morning to introduce our guest speaker for today. Andrea White is the Associate Professor of Theology and Culture at Union Theological School in New York City. And she is also celebrating her 20th year as an ordained minister in the American Baptist uh, Church. In addition to being a professor, this means that throughout Andrea's career, she has served in pastoral ministry, hospice chaplaincy, and she is a chaplain for children. She was a chaplain for children and adults with developmental disabilities. She's currently a member of the Riverside Church in New York City. Andrea has also a great deal of experience in United Methodist circles, too, because she served on the faculty of Emory University's Candler School of Theology for seven years, where she helped to train many of the faith leaders in ministry in the United Methodist Church. She has a PhD in theology from the University of Chicago. She's editing a book with other prestigious faculty around the country, including Drew University's Catherine Keller, who many of you know. She's been the chair and director of multiple societies and departments and academic institutions, and she has been the recipient of several awards. These are just a few of her many credentials and accomplishments. But I have to say, uh, in the brief time that I have known Andrea, those may not be the most important things about her. I have also found Andrea to be a person of tremendous depth. She's passionate about teaching and her students, She's deeply committed to seeing the church live out its mission in the world, and she is unwavering in her pursuit of a more just, equitable, and compassionate world. She's devoted to her family, who are with us today, Rich, who is also an ordained minister, and their two daughters, Mara and Chloe. And Andrea is friendly. She's kind. She's funny. She's gracious. And so I just want to thank you, Andrea, for being with us today, and thank you to your family for being with us today. Uh, we are so thankful that you not only would spend your time with us, but that you would generously offer your gifts to us and to this community. So please uh, help me in joining Andrea White this morning. Thank you, uh, Pastor Kate, and especially congratulations on your ordination. It's really exciting to be here, and to the entire pastoral staff that's invited me. And I want to make sure that my girls who are with me today, Mara and Chloe, heard the part when she said I was funny. <laughs> They're not laughing. <laughs> Will you pray with me? Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The book of Revelation that we heard a passage read from this morning is associated with proclamations of doom, predictions of the end of the world, self-identified prophets claiming to have inside knowledge about what God intends with our final days on earth. It's the end of the world as we know it, as the song goes. Maybe we can read scripture without this book of Revelation. And if we decided to do that, we actually wouldn't be alone in this view. Martin Luther, the 16th century founder of the Protestant Reformation, agreed that the book of Revelation ought to be treated as an appendix. But the writer of the book of Revelation seems to have had a keen perception about at least one human propensity 
For no matter what our historical or cultural context, whether the ancient biblical world or contemporary pop culture, it seems we are fascinated by apocalyptic images. One writer claims that movies like Terminator, Apocalypse Now, The Lion King, Independence Day, Blade Runner, and The Matrix, all movies that my students and family know I've never seen, show that apocalyptic genre is as popular today as it was when the book of Revelation was written. We might say this fascination points to something deeper about our human existence. When we engage apocalyptic imagery, we are also recognizing that the world is not as it should be. That there is a need for radical reversal of things as they are. We are standing firm in the conviction that suffering and violence cannot be all there is to say about our shared experience. We deeply wish for some apocalyptic reordering of our disorder. And it seems that in order for things to change, it will take some sort of divine apocalyptic event to set things right. In this state of affairs, if only for a fleeting moment, in our desperation, we join the author of the book of Revelation and cry on bended knee the prayer that ends the book, the last words of our entire sacred text, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, is also a cry of lament. It's also a protest in the fierce urgency of now. But the prayer also indicates that the one upon whom we call seems far from view, if not entirely absent. In this season of Eastertide, we are celebrating the risen Christ. Yale professor of queer theology, Lynn Tonstad, tells us that the ascension of the resurrected body of Christ entails his disappearance. The body of Christ is lost from sight, perceived as absent, We must remember, she says, that the risen Christ remains unrecognizable. This means most significantly that we do not possess the body of Christ, that we cannot control or order bodies based on some Christic ideal that we have in view. The resurrected Christ eludes our perception and our grasp. And when we forget this, our representations of God become idolatrous and even violent. The life of faith is precarious and brings with it a certain kind of urgency, something down, sometimes downright panic that holds on for dear life to the smallest sense of assurance. But maybe the certainty we are after is itself destroying that which we seek. By possessing God, we unravel the fabric of faith. We seek a God revealed, a God beside whom we wish to stand with certainty about our sense of place. And we fail to consider that the proper stance before the God revealed is a stance of dispossession, a posture of humility that relinquishes the quest for recognition and the power of certainty. Divine revelation, it turns out, is not confined by our blueprint. 
With this book of Revelation, we're presented with a vision of the overthrowing of evil, the elimination of oppression, the destruction of the destroyers of the earth. We expect a conquering lion, and instead we have a slaughtered lamb. We ask for God's powerful vengeance against evil with the justice of retribution, and instead we are given one who suffers death. There are no parameters for revelation. Prayer, the prayer, come Lord Jesus, resists the traps the mind sets up for itself and promises to free thought from idolatrous traps. Prayer subverts the idolatrous self-glorification of parties and nations and leaders who perceive themselves to be the masters of history. Prayer empowers humanity and also at the same time reveals the limits of human power. We think we need a sentimental revelation, but we might need instead a spirit of judgment. The psalmist says, as for those who make their boast in worthless idols, God loves those who hate evil. The food that the empire gives seems indeed to involve sustenance, life support, livelihoods. The empire gladly gives these things, but for a price. For is it not so much, it is not so much that we possess idols, but that our idols possess us. In the face of cosmic disorder and violent abuses of power, the intelligibility of prayer is surely at stake. Prayer makes no sense. The structural violence of the world tests the integrity of prayer in the gravest possible terms. And yet, as one religion scholar puts it, prayer is in a very real sense the one thing necessary. The medieval theologian St. Thomas Aquinas calls prayer an interpreter of desire. There's nothing that the soul desires more, he says, than God. But God is the one who desires first, with an infinitely greater intensity. God pines for us and makes this yearning known through revelation. In this sense, God also prays to us. What we need is the humility of prayer and a determinate hope that praises the liberating work of God while asking humanity to play its own finite but indispensable part. It promises to work against violence and provides an unparalleled training in the ways of hospitality and responsibility. By requiring us to receive the holy other God, prayer prayer constitutes a radical form of welcoming that must be extended to every other. A living prayer is a life that prays and a practice of prayer that lives. The life of faith is then nothing other than prayer without ceasing. It is prayer spread across the many works and habits of each day. Even our politics belong to the prayerful way of life. In praying, come Lord Jesus, the petition indicates that Jesus is not to be handled as an available object. The Christ event is not to be possessed or controlled. The coming of Jesus Christ is promissory, not possessive. So Christian speech about hope is not some form of apparatus for controlling destiny. It is supplication. 
The Christian prayer, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, is a prayer that invites, expects, and commands us to do what is fitting in light of the action of God to whom we pray. It is the prayer of resurrection hope. Hope develops another kind of rationality, another logic, a logic of excess that comes from the superabundance of grace. Hope requires faith not because of a lack of meaning, but precisely because of an excess of meaning. The disturbance of hope is a necessary agitation because the author of the apocalyptic vision is all too aware of the lore of cynicism and complacency. We are ever confronted by struggles so overwhelming that they immobilize us. When it comes to our response to those overpowering forces, these devastating realities of violence and evil, there are several options before us, and one of them is to give up hope. The task is so enormous that it seems pointless to take even one more step forward with our feeble strength. When we give up hope, it could be that we have entered into despair, or it could be that we have shrugged our shoulders in defeated resignation, which leads only to indifference. The book of Revelation contains seven letters to seven churches, you may know, and in the seventh letter, the church is admonished for becoming indifferent, for being lukewarm, almost as if to say it would be so much better if your response to injustice and persecution were anger directed toward God. To the church of Laodicea, John writes, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Just a few years ago, during the season of Lent, the Pope made a prophetic admonition. Instead of giving up chocolate for Lent, he said, give up the globalization of indifference. Political hope means feeling the weight of our complicity and the broad scale effects of indifference. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let everyone who hears say, come, and let everyone who is thirsty, let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. What if this is not merely a summons to find rest in the providential care of God? What if this is also an accusation? The writer proclaims, enter the city by the gates, and yet there is no gatekeeper, only the walls and borders of our minds and spirits. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. This is not a social program or a political affair of nation states. The call is not an encouragement to believe in political progress. There are too many counterfactuals to believe that this is part of the promise. The summons comes not from our favorite progressive or most inspiring activist. The call comes from God. This is a divine summons with a divine purpose to which we have been invited to participate, but which we cannot actually accomplish. This is a bizarre arrangement, an absurd state of affairs, and yet the fact that we are not in the end capable of toppling the imperial powers 
That awareness of our powerlessness is precisely the point. It is when the writer of the apocalyptic vision announces the promise. Here there is no uncertainty, no hesitation from one who bears witness. The point rests in the difficulty, the unsustainability of our spiritual discipline, not because there's some benefit in the shame of the broken promise to ourselves or to the world. The unsustainability points to the fact that the realization of the promise rests with God. The promise is fulfilled not as a result of our obedience, our activism, our fervor. The promise is fulfilled by God. That the discipline can be sustained only temporarily points directly to the eternal promise. The one who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Let everyone who is thirsty come. While we are being filled by the normalization of violence and the globalization of indifference, that which actually satisfies our appetites and quenches our thirsts seems difficult to find. The very fact of our hunger and thirst is actually not always discernible. And if we catch a glimpse and have a momentary recognition of our impoverishment, we will too soon be seduced back into indifference or illusions of self-sufficiency. This is a crisis situation that calls for an urgent response. The imperial seduction is the lure into thinking that the control belongs to the Babylonian empire that sets the terms and conditions for economic and political power. The lived reality does not tell us otherwise. When we ponder God in all this, we think only of an elusive presence, if not utter absence. It is not enough to say that resistance to the empire of violence and complacency and indifference requires divine intervention. The resistance is itself a divine invitation, a gift. The writer of the apocalypse wants us to recognize that we are in a crisis and to discern the privilege and gift of being called to the banquet table, the honor of being invited to resist the imperial seduction of complacency. This is also part of the Babylonian crisis, not that the control appears everlastingly out of our hands, but that the divine promise has been missed. Surely I am coming soon. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. This is what we miss. We miss the gift. And this is the great divine risk that God abundantly gives. And we will not recognize that the divine purpose is already accomplished. That we have been seduced into a forgetfulness about the covenant as already and forever established. This is a political economy of a different sort. The covenant is not conditioned on our success and the resistance movement. It is not the prize for our labors. Instead, the abundant and overflowing excess of the promise conditions the resistance. God's grace makes our labor possible. The resistance to empire is the invitation to participate in the promise already fulfilled. In this we may find God's glory, for the promise the Lamb announces is that God has glorified us, we who are forgetful and complacent. 
What then is the promise? That Christ is coming soon. In the face of despair, turn to resignation, turn to forgetfulness, turn to complacency. God will indeed bear the weight of human experience. God has invited us to eat and drink, to make us a witness to the people. This is the promise, the food that fills our souls, the absurd politics of God that exceeds our inventions of justice. A political hope that believes in this God. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen and amen.